Welcome to the 180 Ministry Podcast. Please check us out at the1-80.org. As we go into our message today, um, if we would go back to the scripture reading that was on there that you can see on the screen, actually, um, Psalm chapter 77, verse 13, and this is what we have been seeing, Psalm chapter 77, I should say, and verse 13, and it states there in that division, Psalm division 77, verse 13 states, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? The powerful thing about this is that the context of the chapter is that it's showing the way of redemption, the way of salvation. So literally what the text is really saying to us is that the way that God saves humanity, that God saves human beings is laid out where? In the sanctuary. And we have been seeing that from, um, as we've been looking at this subject of the reformatory movements of destiny, we've covered the sanctuary and we have literally seen the layout here. Actually, let me go back. We've literally seen the layout of the sanctuary, and we've looked at the courtyard. We've seen as the sinner comes in that first article. Does anyone remember what ABO represents? Altar of sacrifice or burnt offering, right? And then we have we saw that that represented what about Jesus's life, his crucifixion, his sacrifice, right? Well, before Jesus was sacrificed, there was a major thing that he did at the very beginning of his ministry public ministry that showed that it was begun that it had begun what was that baptism right so hence symbolized and deliver of washing one of the things that i found out upon studying later on is that before the the high priest ever um it's not only before he went into the holy place that he washed his hands and purified himself the bible also reveals to us that he would wash himself at that labor before he even received the sacrifice. So that means it's really fitting with Jesus's life in that he was baptized before he was even crucified. So we see those two aspects there. Now remember, in each compartment of the sanctuary we've been seeing, there's movements that rose up to attack what the articles symbolize and movements that protected the articles. Does anyone remember how Jesus' ministry, the ministry that pointed men to the cross, and how John's ministry was attacked. Does anyone remember that ministry of baptism? Does anyone remember what movements in Jesus and John's day attacked what they were doing? That's right. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, the elders, the leaders of the nation, attacked the articles and what it represented. Because what did they do? They taught the people that the Messiah that would come would not die, but rather he would be a military savior to save them from the Romans. Hence, when Jesus told them, hey, I'm going to die, did they receive it? No, they were not ready for it. So hence, Christ was trying to point them to the altar of burnt offering. I am going to be slain. 
but they would not receive it. And then also, because of what the leaders of the nation had taught them, they had a hard time receiving John's ministry. It came to a point where the leaders of the, the religious teachers would say to John, Who, by whose authority are you doing this, right? Who gave you the authority to baptize people to prepare them for the Messiah's coming? And this was the same thing that was said to Jesus Christ. So they attacked it. On the other hand, God raised up Christ and raised up John, and they had disciples, and he raised them up as movements to protect what the articles represented. John pointed people towards the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and those who heard John's message, they were ready for the messianic ministry. It's powerful. If you read in the book Desire of Ages, it actually tells us that those... And actually, it shows it in the Bible a little bit as well. Those who were baptized of John, when God spoke from the heaven, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, only those who were baptized understood the voice. Everyone else, do you know what they heard? They heard thunder. That's all they heard. They didn't even hear the voice of God. And so why were the people able to hear it? Because they were baptized. But what, did that, what does that really symbolize? It symbolizes that their hearts were open to the way that God was leading. Hence, they could hear the voice of God. So that's what we see here. The two movements, John the Baptist's ministry and Jesus' ministry, were raised up to protect the articles. And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes were raised up to attack the articles. Now, after this, Jesus rises from the dead, and he ascends to what compartment of the sanctuary? The holy place. Now, you remember, we saw there were three major articles in the holy place. And you remember, Jesus ascended to the holy place approximately in that same year in which he died, approximately 31 AD. So we're going from 31 AD all the way to the line that you see before the last article, the Ark of the Covenant. And that line is a symbol. Does anyone, so I'm going to ask you guys a difficult question, but you may, you may know the answer. Does anyone know what that line that divides what year, that line that divides the holy place from the most holy place is? Does anyone know what year that represents? That's right. It represents that division tells us that there is a time when the high priest goes into the most holy place once a year. And Jesus did that as we saw in 1844. So from AD 31 to 1844, Christ was where? In the holy place. 1813 years our Savior was there. But he wasn't doing nothing. He was doing a lot. He was seeking to preserve what the articles represent. Now, you remember, we saw that LS. Does anyone remember what LS represents? A lampstand, right? So you have the lampstand in the holy place, and we saw that represents a life of evangelism, right? And then on top of that, we had TS. What is that? Table of showbread. You guys got it. And then we have AI. What is that? Artificial intelligence? No. <laughs> what does it represent? 
Altar of incense, that's right. So we have all three of these articles, one representing a life of evangelism, table of showbread representing the word of God that we must lay hold of and study each and every moment that we have an opportunity, and then we have altar of incense, which represents the prayers of the saints, all right? Now you remember, if you have, if you're missing one of these things in the life, the life becomes unstable. And we saw that before. You can have people who are powerful missionaries doing great evangelism, but yet they don't even know the word of God, right? They don't know the truths that God would have us communicate in this time. Hence, many of the methods that they use to win souls can be off potentially. But then you have people who are serious students of the word, scholars at heart, studying hard, but they never do outreach. They never seek to reach out to others with the message of salvation. And then you may have people that do both of those. They're in the word and they're doing evangelism, but they hardly spend any time with God in prayer. God says there must be a threefold aspect to sustain and grow the spiritual life. Courtyard, we come to Jesus. Holy place, we are sustained and grow in him. Does that make sense? All right, now we saw, sadly that there was a movement that rose up to attack those articles in the holy place. Does anyone remember, and we said that respectfully, it's not disrespect to the people that are a part of that movement. God has people everywhere, in every church, in every religion. But in the last days, he's pointing out systems of deception. And do you remember the movement that rose up while Jesus was in the holy place that attacked the word? What was that? The papacy, right? So the papacy rose up, took the word away from the people. And this is interesting because it's the same spirit as the scribes and the Pharisees. You remember the Pharisees said, you cannot understand the word of God. We must teach you the word. And so they took the word from the people and people were not allowed to interpret the word for themselves. This is the same thing that happened during the dark ages. They took the word from the people Does anyone know what could happen to a person who was found with the word? Yeah, they could potentially be killed. Their property could be confiscated. All of this is religious and secular history. So then they couldn't have the word. They definitely couldn't go spreading what was in the word. And when they came to God the Father, they had to come through the vehicle of another man. Right? So hence we're seeing there's an attack on all three articles. And does anyone know what was Jesus' answer to this attack? What movement did Christ raise up? There's an overarching name for it, but it's many movements under one overarching name. The Reformation. He raised up men like Luther, from whom came what church? Lutherans. He raised up men later on, like John Wesleyan, who came, who, what church came from that church? That man, okay, yeah, Methodist. Um, He raised up men like John Wycliffe, like the Anabaptist, like the Waldensians, preserving the truth concerning the Sabbath. He raised up the Albigenses. All of these people he raised up to protect the articles under the overarching name of of the Reformation, all right? Now, we're going in. We just saw... Last week and the week before that it brought us, we were brought to that line, 1844, where Jesus Christ began to do the work of cleansing the sanctuary, 
all right? And you remember, there is only one day in, Jewish, in the Jewish calendar on which the sanctuary was cleansed. Is anyone? That's right, the Day of Atonement. So hence, once we get beyond that line, what period are we now in? Judgment, the Day of Atonement. Now you remember, we saw that the judgment begins with the dead, and ultimately it will move to the living. So it began in 1844, And how do we know that, some might ask? Go with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 11. This is so interesting. If you ever, we're going to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 19. But as you go there, I'm going to mention something to you guys. If you read from Revelation 1 all the way to Revelation 10, you keep seeing the candlestick and the altar of incense appearing over and over. And the reason for that is that Christ is showing us during the history covered from Revelation 1 to Revelation 10, that history mostly takes place in the holy place while Christ is in the holy place. So it's covering history from the days of the apostles all the way to 1844. But something happens once you get to chapter 11 and verse 19. Look at this. It says here in, Re- in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 19. Actually, I'll read it from verse 18. All right. Say amen when you are there. Amen. All right. This is what it states. It says, saying, actually, and the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come. And look at this. And the time of who? The dead, that they should be judged that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them, which destroy the earth. And then verse 19 says, now look at what happens. At this time that the dead are to be judged, it says in verse 19, and the temple of God was opened in heaven. And you tell me what compartment of the sanctuary we were looking at. It says, the temple of God was opened in heaven and there was seen in his temple, what article? The Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of his Testament. That's the Ten Commandments. And there was lightnings, voices, thunderings, an earthquake and great hail. So what compartment of the sanctuary are we in by Revelation eleven nineteen? Oh, amen. Yes, we're in the most holy place, all right, of the sanctuary. So that means this is now 1844 onward, all the way to our day and beyond. So as we're looking at this now, we're going to see some, under, uh, have an understanding here. So we're going to go in to now the power. We covered the article. And now the, the question that we have to ask is, was there, just like the other compartments of the sanctuary, the courtyard and the holy place, was there a movement that would rise up? Are there movements that would rise up during the time that Jesus is in the most holy place to attack specifically what article? The law of God. So there is a movement that would rise up to attack the law And then there has to be the antithesis of that would be a movement that rises up to protect the law of God. All right? So now let's look at it. So we're seeing here, let's go in our Bibles to this movement. 
And we've already covered the movement. This is very interesting, but there's some added components to it now. Let's go to the solemn chapter in Scripture of Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. All right? Revelation chapter 17. And this is a movement we're going to look at that spreads mass deception. Yesterday I, was, uh, I went to get a haircut in Silver Spring and my grandma was in my aunt's shop right next to the, the place where I usually get my haircut. And so when I went there, I just went there to say hi. And she said, she said, um, she said Akeem, I want you to explain something to me. So she showed me a video of a lady who's like going seemingly really in-depth in the Bible, but it was really extreme. And so she was like, what do you think about this? And so I was like, Granny, I respectfully disagree with, with the sister in the video because in the last days, we have to be really careful because there's going to be a lot of deception. And so we have to be careful to compare what she's saying to the Bible. And she says, Akeem, but I mean, so, so what are we supposed to do? We were talking about it. We were, we were, we were trying to understand it. And I said, she said, then people are going to, are you saying that as time goes on, I mean, well, what's going to happen? And I was like, well, well, people will, they will choose to believe what they want to believe. And she said, yeah, I guess that's how it's going to end. And I was like, well, by God's grace, Granny, there's good news. Jesus, before he allows anyone to die in deception, he will send truth to them. At the end of the world, before the world ends, friends, the Bible tells us why it ends. Matthew 24, 14, it says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached for a witness unto a little town in the corner. No. no. Unto all nations. In this generation, friends, God will send the message everywhere so no one is left without an excuse. If, and so I, I summed it up by saying, she said she, she, was, she was seeing it, and I said, the good news is this. There's good news and bad news. Everyone will be convicted, but not everyone will be converted because everyone will have to make a decision concerning the truth that they hear, whether they will receive it or whether they will reject it. But at the end of the day, God will leave no one without gaining the understanding that they need. The good news is that at the end of time, as we approach the second coming, as we get closer to it, the abundance of truth, God reveals truth to men and women where they are and according to what he knows their heart can receive at the moment. But as we come closer and closer to the end of the world, men's hearts will be brought to a point where God will reveal the depths of the truth that he has for this generation. It will be so powerful <laughs> that I tell you the truth, friends, it will polarize the entire world once it is revealed. Men will either decide to receive or reject. So look, let's look at this power now that attacks the law of God. So you're with me in Revelation 17? All right. Praise the Lord. Okay. So it says there in verses 1 and 2, this statement. It says, and there came one of the seven angels. The, 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 contextually, the seven last plagues have just been touched on in, verse, in chapter 16. And one of the angels, having one of the plagues, came to John. It says, and there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, come here or come hither. 
I will shew unto thee. In other words, I will show you the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters. Verse 2 says, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So this is some heavy stuff. There's a woman, respectfully, the Bible, knowing her character, identifies her by the strong, by a strong term, the great whore. But you remember, this is a woman here, right? That's right. So a woman in Bible prophecy represents a, a church. So it is a church, but she is described as the great whore, which means this church is faithful or not faithful? Not faithful. So an unfaithful church, the context here is the seven last plagues. So we're talking about the end of time. A church that will exist, that will be unfaithful to God. And then it says here, not only is she unfaithful, but it reveals one of the reasons that she is. It says in verse 2 that she has left Christ. She's not connected to him. But who is she connected to deeply? The kings of the earth. Now that word there, kings, is another term for temporal powers. Civil leaders. The people who have the power within the political spectrum of the world. And so what the Bible is telling us is that this great whore who sits upon the waters, and waters, by the way, symbolizes peoples, multitudes, nations, tongues. That's Revelation 17, 15, right? It actually tells us that there. So this woman is sitting upon the nations of the world, but notice how she has that control. It's because she has confederated deeply with the men and women who rule over those nations. So she confederates with them so deeply that the Bible calls it fornication. That's how deeply intertwined she is. How intimate she is with the civil powers of the earth. So the Bible is revealing to us. Now this is prophecy here. And this is amazing. It says, through these powers, it says, the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So it's a stupor that has come upon the nations because of this church. Now, I wonder who this church is. Who is this? Let's go down now to verses 4 and 5. It says here, And the woman was arrayed in purple, scarlet, and decked with gold and precious stones, and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name. Now, we're going to find out who this is. Now, something to keep in mind about verse 4 is there's another woman in Revelation. Revelation 12 describes a woman who is clothed with the light of the sun, standing on the moon, a garland of 12 stars on her forehead. In other words, she is clothed with natural light. This woman here tries to copy that, but with artificial products, all right? So it says in verse 5, it says, And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery. What's the next three words? Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, 
and abominations of the earth. Now, this is interesting. So it calls her, it says mystery. By the way, that's a code phrase for mystery of iniquity. Babylon, so the mystery of iniquity is at work within this church, whatever church this is. And her name is Babylon the Great. So this is now end time Babylon we're talking about. And it says concerning her, she is the mother, okay? So she's a church that's the mother of other harlots. That means other that are faithful or unfaithful? Unfaithful because of the word harlots, right? So this is a mother church that is over other unfaithful churches. What was that? Over her daughters. That means if I come, right? Okay, so, so look at this. I want you to look at this. So my mom and dad, of course, I'm here because they brought me into the world, right? By God's grace, right? Now, once they bring me into the world, am I disconnected from their name or am I connected to it? Connected to it. So my last name, if my, if my name is Akeem, if my mom and dad's name is Donna and Brian James, that means what name am I going to receive? James, right? As my last name. So I am part of the James family. So if the name of this woman, of this church, is Babylon, and she has daughters, what are these daughters as well? Babylon. Okay, so all of these, you have a mother church and then you have all of her daughters are also Babylonian. Okay, so Babylon the great is the mother, but the rest of Babylon are her daughters. Now friends, there's only, (laughs) this is very interesting. There's only one church that calls herself the mother church. This is why what we saw in the holy place is now being resurrected in the most holy place. The same movement that attacked the articles, you remember we are told in the Bible that movement received a deadly wound, but the deadly wound would be healed. That means it would rise up again in the last days. And that's what we're seeing here. The churches that followed this church are also Babylon then as well. So there are churches that are connected to this church that follow her doctrines, her teachings, and they hence become part of Babylon. Now, this is a statement. It came out in 2000, but it was again quoted in 2009. And I want to read this to you. This was a statement from Pope Ratzinger. He was the Pope before the current Pope, Pope Francis, all right? This is what he stated. This, is, this was so powerful, it blew my mind when he stated this. He said this. This is found in the newspaper, The Independent. All right, how many of you have ever heard of The Independent? All right, not many of you. Okay, so we're going to come back to this. All right, so this is the statement that he quoted. This is found in The Independent, April 18, 2009. And this is what he said, because there was an idea going around that, hey, we're all together in this. We're, we're all sisters, you know? We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he came out and he made it clear. He said it must be always clear that the one holy Catholic and apostolic universal church is not the sister, but what? 
the mother of all the churches. Whoa. That's what we were just reading right here, right? The mother of harlots, of other churches that are like herself. But she is leading the way. Now we say that respectfully again. You remember, God has the majority of his people within these other systems. So it's not that we're attacking the people. He has conscientious people. But at the same time, what he's doing is he's pointing out systems. Systems of deception. Now, if this makes sense to each and every one of us, please say amen. All right. This is, this is making sense. All right. Praise the Lord. All right. So I want you to look at this concept with me. This is a very powerful concept. So we're seeing those churches that follow Babylon, those churches that follow Babylon, they will, in a sense, be, they're united to her. They're following her agenda, while at the same time thinking they're not a part of her, whether it be in doctrine, in movement, in how they operate. Any church that has, let me say it very carefully, the remnants or the remainders of certain doctrines of the papal system constitutes Babylon. Does that make sense? Right? So this is why we must try, by God's grace, to draw as close as we can to the biblical mandate. And that biblical mandate will keep us biblically balanced in our spiritual walk. All right? So as we're looking at this now, I want us to look at this concept. So we're seeing, whoa, okay, so you have the churches, even these churches that may have gone away from her, at some point, you remember, people like Martin Luther, powerful man, rose up. His, his, his plan was never even historically to disconnect himself from the papal system. It was to reform it. But as he began to realize this is not working, powerful book by the name of Great Controversy says many of these men, as they rose up and they saw the errors within the, within the church, they thought, okay, you know what? We don't want to rock the boat or anything. We're going to live a pious life. And by that pious life, we hope to be an example. But then it says that the Spirit of God came upon them and caused them to speak against the things that were taking place because it was resulting in the destruction of people's lives, not only spiritually, but physically. So these people, they rose up, and these churches that came up after them in their name came away from the papal system. But now what we are seeing is we are drawing closer to the coming of Jesus Christ. There seems to be a returning to this mother church. That's why the Bible brings it up. There's coming a time where these churches that once departed from Rome will once again return to Rome. All right, now in light of that, when they return, why is this so bad? I mean... Okay, they're going back to the system of deception. That's bad. But, but why does God point it out? The reason that he points it out, friends, is because these churches, along with the mother church, will become the ultimate persecutor of God's true church. God wants us to know what's coming. And so this is why he reveals this to us. And this principle is laid out in history. So I'm going to ask you guys some questions. You ready for these questions? All right. So the first question is this. Oh, I gave away the answer. The first question was, the destroyer of Abel, out of all of these, who was it? 
It was Cain, right? Now you remember, was Cain some, some guy over in, in some other part of space? No, it was his brother. Somebody that was close to him was the one who took his life. All right? Next, we're going to see the other group. Let me see if I make sure I don't press it too fast. Okay. The other group. Okay, I think I went too fast. <laughs> so I gave you guys the answers. You guys got the answers. <laughs> this is an open book test. <laughs> no deception, right? So the first persecutors of Joseph were whom? His brothers, right? Not somebody far off, somebody that was close to him, right? Was the ones who sold him into slavery. Now we go forward. The next group is, this is an interesting one. Who was responsible for Isaiah's death. Do you know what history actually tells us? The person responsible for Isaiah's death was not a pagan king, but it was King Manasseh, one of the most evil kings that reigned among God's people. And so he had, according to tradition and certain aspects of the Bible, even references it. I believe it's in Hebrews chapter 11. It says that there were men who stood for the truth, and as a result, they were cut in half. That's actually how Isaiah died. Isaiah was sawn asunder by King Manasseh. He hated Isaiah. So it was his own people, among his own people, that his killer was, all right? And I think this is the last one. As it concerns Jesus, who got Jesus into the hands of the Romans? the Jewish leaders, right? So we're seeing here that throughout history, the pattern has been the greatest persecutors of the faithful have been who? Yeah, the ones closest to them. The ones who claimed to be the faithful were the ones who persecuted the truly faithful. And so at the end of time, friends, this is why I want to propose this to you. I want to propose this to you. That at the end of time, the greatest persecutors of God's people will not be atheists. By the way, this is the common belief among evangelicals. Evangelicals believe that the end time persecution will come from atheism. But friends, according to the word of God, there is coming a day where all of these other religions will fall under the hand of the mother church and her daughters. The greatest persecutors of God's people at the end of time, according to the pattern of history, will be who? Those other, <laughs> other Christians. At the end of time, friends, contrary to the, the popular narrative, Christianity, mainstream Christianity, is not gonna be the ones persecuted. Mainstream Christianity is going to be the ones doing the persecution. What's that? Yes, false Christians, right? And what is that, Brother Russell? They will be doing her bidding, claiming to be Christians. Those who claim to be Christians will be persecuting the true Christians. And I wonder what the issue will be over. Now, you remember, we saw a power rise back up here to persecute. It was the papal system, right? And her daughters following her. 
Now, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 21 and 25, it tells us that the little horn, which is the description of the same papal power, would seem to change times and laws. What, what laws do you think those are? God's laws. God's commandments would be attacked by this power. Now, you remember, the, the most prominent out of the others, the most prominent article in the most holy place is what article? The Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments. And so this power would rise up again along with the other churches who follow her in order to attack the law of God. So what do you think is going to happen to those who say, no, we are going to stand for that law? They will be persecuted. Hence, Revelation 17, 6 tells us this statement. Revelation 17, 6 tells us, and I saw the woman, Babylon the Great, drunken with the blood of who? The saints, that's martyrdom, and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Whoa. So what we're seeing here is that there's going to come a time when the false Christianity is going to turn upon God's people over the issue of God's commandments, of God's law. And so as we stand for God's law, we will become the very target of the enemy, right? So that means, you see what it's saying to us then? There's gonna then be a movement that will rise up after 1844, that would protect the article that is called the Ark of the Covenant. We will cover that as we end off our series next week. We're going to cover who that movement is. A movement that stands for God's law in these last days. And it is their work to proclaim that law to the world. But with the foundation of the cross of Christ. Right? Right? All right, so I want to read two statements as we close that brings this out. So we saw it from Scripture. Now I want to read these two statements to you as we close from inspired writings. One is taken from the book, Great Controversy, and one is taken from the book, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 451. So I'll read the statement from Great Controversy first. Now we just saw it in the Bible. It says, The Protestants, or the Christians, mainstream Christianity of the United States, will be, look at this. This is how we have to look at this thing. As we look throughout the scope of prophecy, it's not just the papal system that we must be looking at. After we look at, of course, at God's people doing their work. But we must look at what is Christianity doing in this work. The Protestants of the United States will be foremost in stretching her hands across the gulf to grasp the hand of spiritualism. They, that is, now Protestantism and spiritualism, will reach over the abyss and clasp hands with the Roman power. And under the influence of this threefold union, listen to this, this country will follow in the steps of Rome in trampling upon the rights of conscience. Last statement. 
When Protestantism shall stretch her hand across the gulf to grasp the hands of the Roman power, this is speaking of the papacy, when she shall reach over the abyss to clasp the hands with spiritualism, and when under the influence of this threefold union, <laughs> this is more detailed, our country shall repudiate, are you ready? You want to hear what it's going to repudiate? Every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and Republican government. Republican, not meaning Republican Party, but Republican meaning that the power lies where? With the people, right? So what's going to happen is a movement is going to come, this threefold union will result in the repudiation of every principle of our constitution and shall make provision for the propagation of papal falsehoods and delusions. Then we may know when we see this, that the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan and that the end is near. I mean, I'm saying this to you right now <laughs> and I just got goosebumps just reading that. But that is the time that is coming. Now friends, don't think I'm gonna end off this series without giving you hope. As we come back next week, you don't wanna miss it. We're gonna see the movement that God raises up and the hope that lies there. Jesus is doing a work in the world as well. Today we saw the movement that's working against what he's doing in the most holy place. Next week we're gonna see a movement that is doing that work that he wants it to do. Does this make sense to each and every one of us? All right, did we see that even before we read the spirit of prophecy, were we able to see it in the Bible? Did it make sense? All right, praise the Lord, friends, and I thank you for your interaction and for the time that we could spend in the study of God's word. Let us have a closing word of prayer as we wrap up. Father in heaven, Lord, we have covered a good bit of intense things today. But I pray, O oh Lord, that it made sense, and I pray that at least hopefully notes were taken and we can go back and study these things, not just through the lens of Scripture, but even go back in history and see whether these things are so. Father, strengthen us for the times that are ahead, for Revelation 17 is pointing forward to that which is coming. Father, I know that if we have Christ, we need not fear the crisis. If we have the Lord dwelling within our hearts, we need not be troubled. So Father, I pray that you go before us and keep us to this end. In Jesus Christ's name, let all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. Please look us up online at the1-80.org and at the 180 YouTube channel. Please reach out to us with any questions or prayer requests. Until next time, thanks for listening.